survivors will think back on today and say wistful things. The way we were, before it happened. The convoy crosses its final state line. For now, I strap on my boots and I set out to document likely future victims. High school rowing captain, Duncan Coons. There's this guy in my class, Robbie. And his older brother Sam kept getting in trouble. Like, pretty basic stuff, you know? I heard he stole a car once. But, uh, I mean, they're folks, man. (laughs) Not having it. Their mom gets all pissy at him. You know, she's chewing him out. She's screaming all in his face. And I heard he pushed her. And they just went crazy. The thing is, though, they're respectable people. They got their name on stuff around here. You know, the public pool. They got a they gotta look to keep up. So, you know, what can they really do? Right? So they send them off to like this, um, just this, this place. Basically a prison, but not really a prison. Off, I, I don't know, maybe on an island somewhere. Where the laws are different. Where uh, Sam, Sam had a really bad time. You know, you talk about kids living in a stable. And water, you know, bad stuff with water. Being hungry. He came back different. Right, and his parents go to pick him up at the airport thinking, great, they fixed our kid, he'll be good now. No. He says, I want nothing to do with you people. Stays at his grandma's place, he doesn't finish high school, and it's curfews. Who can come around? No bar on the car, no girls in the house, pay him 70 bucks a week to watch his uncle who has, uh, you know, uh, brain problems. And they say, what do you need with money? You know, we we already give you everything. So, Sam's life is a mess. And Robbie, his younger brother, Robbie's captain of the swim team. And Robbie doesn't like swimming. Robbie doesn't like being captain. Robbie is more miserable than his brother. And he looks over at Sam, who he's not even supposed to see. And he thinks, damn, these people will crush me. And... I'm not saying my mom's necessarily the crush-me type, but I know the expectations. Just 81 more days and I'm gone. It's important not to set up base camp until I know what I need. What questions to ask. Locations of interest. People to stick near or stay far. I've been itinerant. With too much equipment and materials and it's too early to be exhausted. 
I'm tired of sleeping in forests and drainage ditches. So I'm putting it out there to the universe. I need a viable base camp. Please, now. So what is the nature of what looms? How does it get you? What is its shape? There are inner aspects. Identity loss, loss of time, a feeling of being occupied, distrust in the senses. There's also a physical and grotesque system of parts. It moves through the hamlet, the wilderness, the metropolis, countries with all kinds of cooking, culture, tradition, through crab boils, barn parties, fiestas, the dust of Lee County, Texas, tunnels outside Havana, Lake Tanganyika. I believe for the first time I'm ahead of them. Now in the midst of his own investigation, with his writing utensils where they go on his desk in perfect parallel. Deputy Steve Steves the Fourth. I trust the commendation bars give their own testimony. If so, I'd like to enter into more casual discourse to relate to you an amusing anecdote of my officerial life. <clears throat> Arnie Kramer's property borders the station to the west. There are balloons on the mailbox from his daughter's birthday party last weekend. Arnie arranged for a bouncy room and a sheet cake. I stopped by to wish a happy and festive time to the darling little miss and to caution Arnie of the risk of staff infection so rampant in bouncy room culture. Assured a safe time was underway, I returned to my office where I stood, as per the police officer's oath, without favor or affection. I observed through the blinds. To my great concern, I did bear witness to an incident of excess temper and gesticulation involving Mrs. Janet Coons and Mrs. Melba Carnes. Mrs. Carnes, in an uncharacteristic agitation, hastened to go, leaving a deep, muddy gouge in Arnie Kramer's lawn. This flagged my attention, and I feared the worst. 5.02 in progress. Drunk driving. All at once, I found myself in hot pursuit of the mother of four careening down the 97, the precious little ones captive in a four-door death machine. I engaged the lights and sirens of my squad car. I gave chase. Thankfully, she pulled to the shoulder without contest or incident. Upon completion of a field sobriety test to my relative satisfaction, I found her system clear of inebriants or foreign substances. It was only anger, but she can't spell danger without it. The next morning, Sergeant Marianne O'Connell took me aside to tell me Melba Carnes had been, quote, scandalized, standing like a flamingo, saying the alphabet backwards, touching her fingertips to her nose, her children helpless in the back seat, rubbernecking motorists casting glares and judgments. I had embarrassed her. I had made her sad. I had distressed the sweet, tiny munchkins. I had shocked the community to its very core. But what if? To this question, I have not been furnished with what I deem an adequate alternative protocol. And to all this, she laughed. Sergeant Marianne O'Connell, she smiled. She squeezed my arm up here by my shoulder, and she told me that I was a good cop. 
She said I did a good job. So I'm writing an apology note to Mrs. Melba Carnes to let her know I care. And to let Sergeant Marianne O'Connell know I'm listening. And that I care. Without favor or affection. Impossible. I'm trying to love Janet Coons, whose rage I need to believe comes from knowledge people can be better. I need to love the man called Brownie, who ruined last year's Independence Day bonfire when he decimated it with a homemade gasoline bomb. A prank, he says. A cry for laughter. I want to love Carl O'Connell, who was touched last night when he found his birthday present, a scuba diving watch, stashed away in the backyard shed. He had already been mourning his marriage. He was sure this was the year the police sergeant would forget him entirely. I need to love in this way because I need to understand what is. Because my memory of love will measure things when they change. I'm trying to love Rick Langerhands, six foot three of mostly legs, with his vague parade of friends he calls the guys, just whoever saddles up next to him at the saloon. I'm trying to love the 73 crushed Rainier cans in the bed of the Ferry Douglas Field Services truck in Rick Langerhands' driveway, stashed between the push mower, the job box, and the generator. I'm trying to love local contractor, Rick Langerhands. So he has the fever, baby fever. The other day she looks at me dead in the face, flails her arms in the air, straight screams at me, Rick, I have the fever. And like doing it to conceive is so lame. And it's like makes it into work, you know, uh, taking the scenic route. And we're on the calendar about it, you know, just got to work around it, take long lunches, get it in between errands. And uh, she's starting to worry. Mm. Me and Sally got together when we were 15. There's something like uh, 80 of us in our graduating class, so. You know, folks get in a hurry. There's pressure to lock it in. You ever, you know, lose it in musical chairs? That's the thinking at the time, so. So, about a year and a half ago, we were at the block party, and Sally got kind of drunk and was kind of being, I thought, overly friendly with the guy that runs the pharmacy, a dude, Carl. And I was pissed, you know? I'm still pissed. And I could see people noticing them and looking at me like, is he going to do something about this? And, you know, it was embarrassing. I couldn't believe she was doing this to us, you know? So, yeah, I make a scene. And I get sent away. And uh, a week later, and uh, I still haven't come down. And just like it was the most natural thing in the world to do, I make an appointment. And I get it done. You know, get clipped. <laughs> Down there. Get rid of my swimmers. 
and uh, just, you know, never came up, and, and now it seems a little late to mention, and now Sally's really ramping it up, like, reading, researching, fertility potions and all that, and this Thursday I got a dip from work early, I guess she logged us in for, like, a consultation at a fertility clinic. And I just hope to God it's not the same doctor. The term sleeper cell has a horrible mouthfeel. But I need to say I'm not alone. But that I'm separate from my allies by distance. My alias, communication ciphers. I've never met the people I trust. Well, I'm stumbling on my first step here in Lulu, so I reach out. In our code language, I say, need acreage. I say, need bad. Today I wake up in my most recent sleeping place with a thought that's more like a recent memory. I follow my memory through three abutting apple orchards, through chest-high grass. I wade across a river with an eroded shore, and my yurt stands tucked away in its own perfect place. Thank you, Maryland Blue, for your phantom friendship. I needed you. Sleeper cell is a clumsy word for something like that. And now I'm back to better reconnaissance. High school guidance counselor. Part-time baker at Albertsons. With all-purpose flour wafting from her apron. Melba Carnes. It's the middle of the night. January 1992. Folks say that was a good time to live in Seattle. Flannels and Nirvana and angst and Eddie Vedder. I wouldn't know. I get the question all the time, what were the 90s like? For me, the honest answer would be something like, homeroom, a hundred miles away. Take a wild guess. The other side of the Cascades. Votes red, everything's brown, gets into the hundreds during the hot season. We don't live in Seattle. There's other places. But I can appreciate why Eric was excited to be there. He surprised himself, got into UW against all odds, moved into a dorm, started up a little band in some kid's garage. We can at least say he tried. I was still in high school at the time and just had one family phone in the kitchen, not supposed to take calls from late, from boys, and especially not from him trick was to call the weather number, keep the line busy. Then when he calls, it doesn't ring aloud, just get him on the call waiting. (laughs) Did it almost every night. My dad just let me think I was getting away with something. But this phone call wasn't like that. Something happened. You still get different versions depending how he tells it. Was it drugs or drinking? Was it a choice? Sometimes he says he was mooning people and lost his footing off the railing, but actually none of that particularly matters to me. What mattered was that what he was doing wasn't working. These things don't just happen. Well, somebody else must have thought that way too, and it all comes to light. The bad grades he's apparently getting, the classes he isn't going to, the rent money he's blowing, the probation he gets put on. He put up a pretty small fight after that, came home like he was about this big. The stories he told were not those of some free-spirit college maniac. They were dark. 
They were mental health problems. In hindsight, that was a big part of what attracted me to my field. That is being a counselor, not working at Albertsons. Looking at him in the middle of it, thinking, I'm not doing this just because. So I try to listen to my kiddos for what I think their heart is trying to say. Not what they want to say, or more likely what somebody wants them to say, or something they think they want. You know, 47% of grad students suffer from depression. 10% consider suicide. Why do we do this to our brightest kids? Why did we decide this is the cost of moving forward? It's obviously not for everyone. And that's how Eric found out it wasn't for him. Got all the expectation out of the way. And he goes on, absolutely excels in trade school. Focus in HVAC, stuff he's inclined toward. He motors through, gets his apprenticeship straight out of his program. He seems happy, too. So... When Janet's son, Duncan, comes into my office for his advisement session, and he's talking about the valley and his ecology class and his camping trips, yes, I may have mentioned a couple ideas that I thought spoke to his interests. I didn't tell him to be an orchardist. I don't tell kids what to be. Well, look, he ended up getting in everywhere. I hope he picks a program that works for him. Lucky for Eric, who's now my husband, and for me, he happened to land on some tall shrub thing. Anyway, last weekend I met my job at Albertsons and Janet Kuhn storms in and completely flies off the handle. I think she tried to frame me for drunk driving, but that's a story for another time. And here's the look on this poor kid's face screaming, let me die where I stand. And I'm thinking, this isn't right. I see this kid. Probably 6'2", the captain of the Wolf Squatch rowing team, dragged out of the store like a chihuahua on a leash. I'm thinking, this is going to end one of two ways. I mean, look at Rick Langerhans. He's not happy with his life choices, and we're all used to seeing him stumble out of the saloon at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, Rick Langerhans earned a letterman's jacket, too. Rick got into Lewis and Clark on a cross-country scholarship, and we all know how that turned out. I just hope Duncan lands right. How do you remember young? What do you remember young? so close to the bone Was it either all or none Did it all revolve around someone Were Janet, were you alone Was it any fun How do you remember young Just 
inch along Did you know to what degree Did you grow or shrink away Take me back to the day Take me back to the day If you Novel comfort in my new shelter meets nauseating awareness. At 2.29, I flip the pillow to the cold side. My hand brushes my shoulder. I feel something. Oh, no. I scramble out of my sleeping bag and light the propane lantern. Yup, there it is. Burrowed by a tick from the overgrowth. I open my pocket tool. I go to the tweezers, remember Cub Scouts. I remove the animal by its mouth parts. Remember, Police Sergeant O'Connell, we are surrounded by bloodthirsty things. So I go down onto the parade route day before the Easter festivities, a day off, but I'm still suited up. And I'm just looking for somebody to point me in a direction. It's disorganized, but it always is. And I'm pulling out the so-called grandstands we rented, marking stuff with ribbons and tape, and we finally finish up after dark. And the whole town's there, catching a debrief, you know, sharing a moment. And I remember opening a Bud Light, second, third, tops. Then something snagged my attention up the road. Don't know if anybody else noticed it. It kind of gave me a feeling. So I step up onto Pine Street just to look down a ways, and I don't see anything. But I feel a, a, a something. And now my stomach isn't right. So I plop down on the curb. And the next thing, as if no time's passed at all, I'm opening my eyes in my house on Monday, the day after the parade. I mean, after the picnic and the egg hunt and the fun. Did I drink that much? No, I didn't drink that much. Did I have some kind of mental, mental bad thing? Oh gosh, I hope not. And my husband, Carl, he doesn't mention it. And that's strange too. Unless maybe he's got the same thing going. Like maybe we got a gas leak in the house or something. Now, how to poke around without sounding funny or make people worry or make people doubt me here? Makes me nervous nobody said anything. Hope I don't end up hearing about this down the line whenever I make the wrong person mad enough.
here's my basket of treats The fog slurps up the valley It burps back up the bones The power flickers once The hour on my phone says That can't be right. Strangers come.